Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we're going to continue our conversation talking about public and media relations, navigating through crisis, telling your story, and protecting your brand. We will be speaking with a seasoned thought leader, writer, storyteller, problem solver, and relationship builder who advises companies and individuals on these issues and runs his own PR firm. It's my pleasure to welcome Pat Milheiser back to the show. Pat is the founder of Milheiser Public Relations, and he provides solutions by crafting communication plans that balance the needs of any audience. He emphasizes doing the small things right, believing they're essential to maintain credibility and accomplish the big picture. Pat advises clients on media relations, media training, crisis response, rapid response, content creation, public affairs, community outreach, and internal communication. He amplifies your message to get it seen and heard. He's a steady hand when the unexpected happens. Deadlines are fuel and never a roadblock. It is my pleasure to welcome Pat Milheiser back to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Tina. So, Pat, we covered a lot of ground in our last segment, and one of the things I would really love, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, is to hear your wisdom on things like hardball questions and crisis communications, which are two of your specialties. Why don't we kick off our second segment by talking about how you approach those really difficult questions and counseling your clients on how to field them? as well as how you help your clients navigate through crisis communications. Absolutely. Uh, and, and this is, it is definitely one of the most challenging aspects of the work because you're not starting from a fun place. And the first thing I start with is I start by seeing if the client has in-house PR, media, communications, marketing professionals, if they have them, I start by seeing, are they at the table when major organizational decisions are made? If they are, I feel like we're at least starting from a position of strength uh, because you had your comms people at the table when you were making important decisions and Presumably, they would have thrown up some guardrails if, if things looked like they could cause a problem. But if, if they're not at the table for that, I know there's some work to do and some internal systems to establish. And I also pretty much know the crisis horse has sprinted out of the barn and I got to go start trying to wrangle it back in. The benefit of having the crisis comms pro at the table for any major decisions, whether it's me or your in-house staff, is as simple as this. We can ask the question of what do we want and what do we want to avoid? Many times, a crisis comms pro can use this exercise to explain how a course of action you want to take could actually cause the very thing you are trying to avoid. It sounds crazy, 
but we do it all the time in our personal lives. I mean, how many times does somebody rush to respond to a text or email because you're actually trying to avoid a conflict, but because you rushed into it, you selected the wrong words and now you have a conflict. All you had to do was wait for the clarity you needed uh, before responding. And we can see how the relationship between actions and unintended consequences, we can see that and, and then see how we should adjust to ensure that your intentions align with your actions. One thing I always preach is we cannot predict, but we can prepare. It's like any litigation or legal matter. And my job is to begin with reality. And that can be a tough conversation to have because I immediately go to I go to all worst case scenarios. I want everybody to understand the gravity we're dealing with. And our first public statement about the crisis is the most important one because that will set the tone with the press and the public about what type of organization you are. The fact is the reporters we're talking to have seen so many crises and they have built an antenna and instincts that quickly inform them whether you're handling this appropriately and their news coverage will immediately reflect that. Uh, if it's a problem that we can, one, acknowledge, two, take responsive action that would widely be deemed appropriate and the right thing to do, and three, clearly explain what we are doing to ensure it never happens again, that's best case scenario in three steps. Mm -hmm. These three steps are a crisis comms pro's best friend. They always work. And in some instances, there can be a crisis we can probably get in front of and handle before there's press coverage. And maybe there never is press coverage. But this isn't always easily done. And it may not be the fault of the organization. There can be examples where the, quote, uh, right thing to do may cause another step in the crisis you want to avoid. Like, you know you should fire an employee, but HR is pointing out that there will be a lawsuit that will cost money and drag this out longer than any press coverage you're going to get. Or somebody else is saying how valuable the person has been to the organization and one mistake shouldn't be the end of his or her career. Or maybe there are decision makers in the organization who have social or political beliefs that say the crisis shouldn't be a crisis at all. And especially in the divisive times we live in today, there's hard lines in the sand on both sides. So now it's like Game of Thrones and you're in the great game now and you need to start preparing for a, a media battle. Because when it's over, whenever that day comes, it's going to have drained a lot out of you physically and emotionally. And that's where a crisis comms professional can help map out the possibilities for each decision option that you have. Very interesting. So let's talk for a moment about, you know, in the whole area of crisis communications, you've mentioned to me before that you want to get to floating. Can you explain what you mean by that? I, I love that <laughs> phrase and I'm probably going to end up borrowing it maybe more than you care for me to, but um, why don't you explain to our audience what you mean by that? Absolutely. So part of the reason I want to immediately resolve a crisis through those three steps that I've talked about, where you're, you're acknowledging, you're taking a responsive action that will be widely deemed appropriate, and you're clearly explaining what we're doing uh, so that it never happens again, is then you avoid the drawn out crisis process. And that process will consume you. So I, I also talk to, 
to clients about what do they do to cope with stress? Because sometimes you need to hear somebody say, hey, when was the last time you went for a run? When was the last time you got on your bike? When did you do yoga? Whatever it is, I know that they do to relax and recharge. I always support a holistic approach to anything, especially a crisis, to not just cope with the crisis, but also to find clarity and answers. And I find it for myself, you know, going to the gym and, and doing the things that I do uh, to cope uh, with stress on my end. And I, I, I was once stuck in a crisis matter with a client and literally got to a point where I couldn't see my next step. Uh, this was uh, back when I was regularly attending an early morning uh, Friday high intensity interval training gym class for 30 minutes. And then after that, at 6 a.m., the instructor would go straight to do 60 minutes of cycling. And some people from the 5.30 class would go to the 6 a.m. class. And I never went to the cycling portion, primarily due to time. And that 5.30 class was already insane enough. But on this day, I was knee-deep in a crisis. So I decided to do the cycling. And while the instructor was up there leading the class and jamming out on her stationary bike to pour some sugar on me, the chorus is coming and she yells to the class, sing it. <laughs> and I do. I do. And I've karaoke to this song. So it's not the first time I've sung Def Leppard in public. I think and, we all have karaoke to this song more than we make oh, here to admit. <laughs> it, it's, it's a great one. Uh, and right after I and a few others belt out the chorus, a magical thing happened. My mind was clear. I saw the next step and I felt the mental breakthrough happen. Total endorphin rush. And all this next step was was calling somebody who wasn't involved in the matter because I knew they would have some information to help me respond to this crisis. I didn't think of contacting this person when I was knee deep in the matter, but when I was able to get my head out of it, it was like, oh, this person can help me. And all of a sudden, just knowing that I can call this person and they would help me give the key piece of information that I needed to work through the crisis, the heavy weight is lifted off my mind and body and I'm floating again. In a crisis, you want to get to that floating stage, but there's absolutely times where you can't quickly solve it in the three steps of acknowledge, do the right thing, make sure it happens again, never happens again, and, and you could be in for the long haul, um, but we want to get to floating. So, so, you know, there can be times where if you can't do those three things and there's internal disagreement on how to handle it and you put out a statement and maybe it doesn't solve what you wanted to solve and now you're in a chess match every day uh, for, for how long, well, then what I do is I can look at the media coverage, analyze word choice, headlines, what points are made at what points in the story. And I can tell you where we stand and how much more coverage uh, to, to expect. And what's kind of crazy in all of this is that if you do find yourself in one of these crisis matters where the press is involved, it's actually better to be locked in on it with the news outlet, maybe that first covered the story or that broke the story and, and is the only outlet covering the case sometimes, or just the matter. Uh, sometimes there are stories that if one news outlet has all the details, other outlets may stay away from it. It's rare but it does happen. And then what I do is I step in and I, I develop a relationship and rapport if I don't already have it with the reporters and I get a sense of how they work. 
uh, styles I've seen from reporters who, who can be involved in these matters. There's hard-nosed aggressiveness, which I don't necessarily mind because at least you always know what you're going to get. There's a good cop, bad cop routine where they might act friendly uh, to attempt to extract information and you may provide some that's helpful, but then you feel like the reporter's personality shifts later. Uh, and there are some who play it like a quiet game of poker and never show their cards until you sure show yours in the form of answering their questions. And to help get us to that floating stage, the questions are always best received in writing. You do exercise some control over that and you can make that request. And from those questions, I can decipher what the end game could be, or at least possibilities of the end games. And a comms pro can help you craft responses that are factually accurate and protect whatever it is you're trying to protect while also telling you the follow-up questions that will come and how it can be advantageous to get ahead of that and respond to it now to show that you are being proactive. Or the comms pro may say that this is a real chess match and let's just answer what we're being asked, asked and answered. That is also usually the best approach, but there's always room for that discussion so that I can frame the matter for the client. And, and it's important, it's so important to remember you're not the first and certainly not the last organization to be in these moments. So there is a level of predictability. In some ways, that is control because an experienced crisis comms pro can tell you exactly how it's likely to play out. And at least knowing that roadmap gives you a level of control. And you do have the control in what your response is going to be. And uh, bringing this back to you know, the, the beginning of this topic, you, you exercise maximum control and minimize PR risk when you can acknowledge the problem, take appropriate responsive action, and put in internal controls to ensure it never happens again. These are just the three steps set another way. All really terrific advice. And I think we can all learn a lot from the anecdotes that you share and in and, and your sage advice on all of this. I guess, you know, you and I are in similar businesses, although some would say they're very different. There's a lot of client management, client handholding, trying to see things from the points of view of the folks uh, for whom we are providing our services. And so, you know, sometimes what you've said, the, the framework that you've mapped out, sometimes things go to plan, right? And sometimes they don't. So what is your advice in those instances where, for example, your client has taken your advice, but even notwithstanding following your advice, they, they still think that the coverage has been unfair? So I'd love to sort of explore that scenario and then would also love to hear from you about whether you've experienced circumstances where your clients, no matter how good of a rapport you've had with them, all the advice and coaching you've given them when they don't take the advice and stuff happens. I'd love to hear more from you about both of those scenarios. And those are, those are two very distinct scenarios with the same result, right? Like you, and the result is we're not happy with the the press coverage. And, and those are, 
those are by far the most delicate conversations because in the in the first example where they've followed the advice, but the they still are deeming the coverage unfair and, and they, they might very well be right. The first thing I have to do, and I, I kind of do this in my head while I'm reading the story for the first time anyway, but I'll, I'll, I'll read it again and, and, and analyze it further. I analyze the coverage and I see what happened. If it's a situation where a reporter wrote or said something that is factually wrong or misrepresents what we said, uh, well, that's an immediate phone call and an email to get it corrected. And if it is a factual error, most news outlets will and want to correct it immediately. That is usually not a problem, getting a factual error corrected. Um, however, if there are important points about what we said that were not included uh, in the story and we think it's missing context that is absolutely necessary because if the reader or the listener or the viewer had the context, they would draw a completely different opinion about what we're doing. Uh, well, I'm going to reach out to the reporter and if they're not budging on the story that they wrote, well, we still have publishing options. Uh, this isn't the 20 plus years ago when I started in newspapers and you had to write a physical letter to a paper and mail or fax it over and hope they retype it and publish it. Uh, today, we're all publishers through multiple social media channels, websites, email blasts to communicate with audiences. You can inform your clients of the issues that you have with a news report. And, and if you think it's worth doing publicly, post it on your social pages. That would be a pretty dramatic step, but there can be dramatic steps that, that do require you at least exploring that course of action. And, and yes, we're also going to make these points to the news outlet uh, whose coverage we disagree with. You want to be on the record on that because there could still be future coverage and you want to prevent another incident of something of um, what you're perceiving as a misrepresentation. And I always go to the actual reporter first because that's who's essentially who has the most control over what happens next. I rarely go over their heads to talk to an editor. I think in six years of being on this side of the news PR fence, I can only recall going straight to an editor or supervisor one time. And that was when a reporter was asking me why the organization I represented wasn't addressing a problem by taking an action that was clearly impossible for many reasons. And uh, I, when I called the supervisor, it was over in like two minutes. She heard me. She basically ended the call while I still had a lot to say and said not to worry about it because clearly what the reporter was saying we needed to be doing was impossible. So my test, at least at the outset, is if what they're saying is total madness, call an editor. <laughs> and like I said, <laughs> I, I, I only remember doing that one time. And when I am going straight to the reporter to talk about coverage, I prefer it to be in person, but I will talk over the phone, of course. I don't find email to be effective here because there's too much time they can take to respond and try to dismiss what you're saying. That's much harder to do in a conversation where I'm being sincere, direct, concise, and accurate. Um, all that said, this, this can be a tough thing to do because you need two components to do this effectively. You, one, you have to be objectively right. 
and two, they have to agree to meet in person and they might be more likely to take a phone call. And for anybody saying you got to send an email and put it in writing, well, that's always an option for us to do that never has an expiration date. And we may very well want to put it in writing to officially put it on the record. But, but I always find the personal approach where you're not being too combative with the reporter, even though that's what the client might want, works a little bit better to get the result we want, which is we either need a correction here on the current coverage or, okay, for any future coverage, we need you to clear this up. It's just the email, the, the nonverbal nature of the email, it, it's, it's, it's less effective because our voices capture tone in ways the written word cannot. And so when I sit down and do meet with somebody, I set a tone right away by removing almost all emotion from my words. I keep it professional and civil by putting on my old reporter's and editor's hat. And I approach it like a journalist, only focusing on facts. And that limits the emotions. And I'm coming with my examples of parts of the coverage that are unfair or out of context. It could be one big one, or three to five smaller ones that when taken together, create a big misperception for the public based on the reporting that's out there. Uh, I would try to keep it to three examples and I wouldn't do more than five of issues that we have with the coverage because then you just end up with a laundry list of complaints that will get written off as a laundry list of complaints. And when the reporter goes back to the newsroom and tells the editor, this guy will never be happy, so we must be doing our job right. You're, and, and you're not going to get get what you want. And my points are clear, concise. If there's knee-jerk resistance, I stay cool and counter or simply restate my point when the pushback comes. It can work. And if you're correct and calm, it, it should. But you also are asking about what's a situation where I recommend a course of action that the client chooses a different course of action. Well, uh, <laughs> our favorite scenario of all. <laughs> right. And certainly lawyers see that too, right? Because clients can decide what next step they want to take. And maybe they don't always go with what you're recommending. Well, I guess the good news is, is you're, you know, there's no expiration date on your good original idea. It's just when you end up in that situation, it's like now you have to, it makes it more difficult because now you have to craft communication that is still consistent with what you did originally. And, and that can be difficult to do because certainly what can happen is then you end up what you end up in a situation where you chose an action, the press covered it, made it made you look foolish. And now you're going to choose a different action and the press is going to perceive it's because of the coverage. And that may, they just have to point it out chronologically. You did A, we reported B, and now you're doing C. And that's going to, you know, that's going to leave the, the press, uh, the public with the perception that you only pivoted because of negative news coverage. So, What's I guess what is always essential is is you know I'll come back I'll just come back to the client and talk through all of these scenarios just so they can understand what's going to happen and then we get into what we control and what we don't and 
And so it's, they're the most difficult discussions, but I just approach them the same way I approach them with uh, uh, the journalists I talk about, take the emotion out of it. I approach it the same way, you know, I, I worked for 400 judges. And as any lawyer knows in court, you know, you, you just, civility and professionalism always wins the day. Um, so as long as, as long as I'm staying at that level, that can help bring the client to that level and clear heads will prevail. But also in that situation, I want to slow things down a little and I don't want to make any quick actions because it may have been a quick action that got us in the quagmire that we're in now. So there is always something to be gained by a good night's sleep and a cup of coffee in the morning. Great advice. And I think for the lawyers out there, particularly those, whether they're in in-house or private practice, can really relate to what you've said and you've given us some good guidance. So there are a couple more things I'd love to cover with you as we pivot out of crisis and conflict and back to what I think a lot of lawyers are interested in, in some shape or form, and that is developing a professional relationship with reporters and the press. First of all, do you have any advice for our listeners as to how, if they're interested in developing this kind of relationship, how they can develop either an off to be an off the record source or an on the record expert? And if you have any uh, words of wisdom as to how a lawyer or really anybody can navigate what can sometimes be the tricky waters of being on the record versus off the record. Definitely. And, and they're very important terms to understand because the assumption on the reporter's end is that you do understand them, not that they would need to be explained to you. So I had a lot of strong source relationships with lawyers when I was a reporter Reporters typically initiate these relationships, um, but even reporters can get stuck only using and trusting their sources and don't get out of their trusted circle. So sometimes you, the attorney, uh, can do the outreach. And the best way is for it to happen organically. If they're calling you for, let's say, a case or some matter you're involved in, um, and they get and they talk to you and you, you know, they can see through what you're saying about the story they're working on that you truly know what you're talking about. And they may then want to call you again on something else that they think you might have some guidance on. But that may never happen. And and so sometimes the best person to do the outreach is the attorney. And you may think, well, hey, Pat, that's what I hired you for. Well, if we're results driven. And the result we want is for you to be that source and, and that expert. And we don't want to get stuck in a process that may be a dead-end process. Sometimes uh, the lawyer has to do the outreach. And of course, you hired me to walk, write, communicate with you the whole way through the process to get the result we're seeking. And, and cold calling uh, can work, especially if you are one of the few experts in your field on something that's going to be one of the top stories in the news cycle for days or weeks to come. Uh, and I know this through my own experience. Uh, this is something I learned, oddly enough, when I was a reporter. 
everybody who follows Chicago politics remembers the time in January 2011 when we were in the midst of our first mayoral election after Mayor Daley and Rahm Emanuel was running for the job but had a residency issue since he was living in Washington, D.C. and renting out his Chicago home while he was working for President Obama. We all know Rahm Emanuel won and served as mayor for two terms, but there was a moment when almost none of that happened because the entity that I was the only reporter in town assigned to cover, uh, the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, kicked him off the ballot. And I was based in the Daily Center press room at the time for the Daily Law Bulletin. And I made my daily one block walk just before 10 a.m. to the Blandick building to pick up the appellate ruling. Usually, it's a quiet trip, no fanfare, no other reporters in sight, but I obviously knew this day was going to be different. The clerk's office was packed with reporters waiting for the ruling. Emmanuel's lawyers were there and behind the clerk's counter, so they clearly got the ruling before we did. And when I saw a stunned look on the face of of one of Emmanuel's lawyers, I knew something was up. Uh, The clerks then gave the press the appellate court's ruling and people immediately, the reporters immediately went to the end reading an appellate justice's writing that supported Emanuel's claim to be on the ballot. So several reporters thought Emanuel survived the residency challenge. And I'm looking down reading it too. And I simply point out, I simply say, you're reading from the dissent. Uh, in other words, <laughs> pretty important to well, tell the difference between the decision and the dissent. <laughs> yeah, you, some of them you don't even know me, but 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 you're not looking at the right thing. So, in other words, the news today is Rahm Emanuel is kicked off the ballot and can't run for mayor. That was a true statement that day, and this was before Twitter was such a dominant part of our lives. So, the only way for a newspaper to break the news was to put it on your website and do an email blast to all your subscribers, which is exactly what the Law Bulletin was doing with breaking news at the time. And I started my race back to the Daily Center to write about what we needed to do. And as I got on the elevator to leave the clerk's office, a shoe kicks the door open. I look up. It's a very prominent Chicago television reporter. Uh, The reporter, nearly out of breath, blurts out, I'm going live on the street in five minutes. What does this all mean? And I said, it means if you get to your camera before I get back to my office, you'll be the first person to tell the world that Rahm Emanuel is off the ballot. Uh, The reporter's eyes lit up big. And I don't know who reported the story first, but mine was out there in a few (laughs) minutes. And and after I filed my story, I realized I was just in a room with reporters from darn near every Chicago media outlet and appellate court rulings are something none of them cover. I understood the nuance of the appellate court and some of the word choices in the ruling, because, again, I cover this stuff every day and I covered plenty of cases more legally significant than this one, but none were more newsworthy to the public. It dawned on me. I'm going to write my story go home for the day, flip on my favorite local news show, Chicago Tonight on WTCW, and I might be shouting at the TV if I think somebody on that show is missing the high points of this appellate ruling that decided the Illinois Municipal Code trumps the Illinois Election Code when determining residency requirements for public office. So I cold called the WTTW newsroom that day. Didn't know anybody over there. 
I got a producer on the phone and I just said, hey, if you're talking about this tonight, here's what I cover now. Here's a 30-second summary of my resume. I have a little TV experience from my time at the paper in Rockford, and I can do this. He called me right back within the hour and said, you're on. I went on live TV that night to talk about the case. They invited me back almost immediately. It might have been the next night to talk about this case. And then when the Illinois Supreme Court agreed to hear it and reinstated Emanuel's candidacy. And then I became a semi-regular for legal affairs on their Friday Reporters Only Week in Review. And it was a wonderful experience, both professionally and personally. I heard from half my world every time I was on. Strangers would stop me on the street or in an elevator in the Daily Center and ask me how they know me. And, and I loved it. So it all happened organically. And there was certainly luck and good fortune at play. But I, I made my own luck. And, and that's what a lawyer can do. You just have to pick the right spot, be ready to drop everything if they actually want you on their show, and then never say no to an opportunity because you got to keep that fire burning every time they call. And you got to prepare, absolutely got to prepare. Uh, in this case, uh, it's live TV. Uh, so if you're not prepared, it will show your, your, your butterflies may not show mine never did though. I always felt them burning up my veins until the moment when I got words out of my mouth and made my first point of the show, but you will definitely feel butterflies and those are easy to work through as long as you prepared for what you're going to say and what you might be asked. So when it comes to going off the record with a reporter, do you have any quick thoughts for our audience about when a lawyer who's looking to develop a relationship with a reporter, when they may want to go off the record? And sometimes the best lessons are in what not to do. Do you have any quick thoughts on that as well? Yes. Uh, it, it we're Off the record works when the reporter allows it. That's something that's crucial. They have to allow it. Sometimes you may have to push them on it a, a little bit, but it works when it's clearly established and you're when you are off the record and when you are on. This is crucial because while this is a general guide, every reporter kind of enforces it differently. And before we quickly talk about how to do it, let's define it because that's something that can get confusing. On the record, that's easy. Everything you say is for attribution and publication. You can, of course, take a moment to restate something if you didn't say it the way you intended, but it's all for publication. In other words, never say something to a reporter or text or email or social media message something to a reporter that you wouldn't want to read on the front page of the newspaper. You're always on the record unless they say you're not. And that's off the record, which is a bit more nuanced. It means you will provide information that the reporter can use, but you do not want to be part of the story. You do not want your name anywhere in the story. You're just a source providing them information. That, and, and, and it might just be to help them with their story. Um, but there can be times when you're in a situation where you are part of the story and there are things you will provide on the record, but there's something maybe for some reason you can't say it publicly. Maybe, and I'm sure lawyers can figure out reasons why they can't say something publicly, but maybe they want to point somebody in the direction of a, 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 a court filing or something that they should go find or just some other perspective on something that they need. 
So you might want to go off the record to help point the reporter in that direction. That's going to be both helpful to your law firm and the reporter. There's a reason you can't say it on the record. Some reporters refer to it as going on background, which to me is the same as off the record, but everyone's got their own definitions. So I would only use the terms on or off the record. And to do it effectively, you set the terms right away for when you are off or on the record. You say, uh, okay, so we're on the record here. Great. Now I want to go off the record. They'll say, okay. And, and then you can go and speak and you'll know that's not going to end up in the story with your name attached to it. Uh, but there might be moments where the reporter will control it and they'll say, okay, now back on the record. But you should confirm that if only you are indeed ready to go back on the record. At that point, the reporter might also be signaling that he or she has heard enough off the record and has what they need from you in that regard. All, all this said, as a reporter, I did have sources who always knew they were off the record, but those are long-standing relationships where that assumption is developed over time. And I'm sure some of the listeners have those. Um, and, and I eventually told uh, some of the lawyers who were my sources, you're always off the record unless I request otherwise. So if you don't have that relationship, which most people don't, the key is to never assume ever anything. Every reporter is different on the topic. It should be more black and white. Unfortunately, it's not. Great, great advice. I know that it seems like we're at a buffet here and we're going from one station to the next here. Um, our time is quickly disappearing, but there are a couple more things I'd love to ask you. First, do you have any advice for attorneys who are looking for a way to brand themselves through thought leadership and media content? We've talked about how they can develop relationships with reporters and so forth. A lot of the way in which attorneys try to develop their personal brand and to develop a presence in their respective legal communities is through generating thought leadership, um, as well as using social media. But in the process of social media becoming more popular, as you referenced, you know, you and I both started doing our respective gigs well before things like Twitter became ubiquitous. How do you advise lawyers to, so, to successfully leverage social media and the time that they spend on thought leadership? What do you think is sort of the way to make sure that the rubber meets the road and that people make the most of these opportunities. It's 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 the old Nike slogan, just just do it. Right? You just got to you just have to do it. That's a big first step and the probably the easiest thing to do at the outset is if you're on LinkedIn is a LinkedIn post and you know we can pick a pick a topic it can be about you know something you're well known for the business of law uh it could be something maybe there's some some new precedent setting in your you know your field of law that all the lawyers in your respective field need to be aware of and the key is is what not to do is don't make it about yourself obviously it's not about you. It's about the work. It's about the issue. And, and the best way to get that result is something I used to tell reporters when I was an editor all the time. And it was something I was told by some editors before when I was a reporter. And it's, it's in your writing. Uh, I, I want you to show rather than tell. Don't, don't tell me 
this is the best thing in the world. Show me why it's the best thing in the world uh, through examples. And, and, and by doing, by presenting those examples, that will leave the audience with the perception of, oh, wow, this person is the expert. LinkedIn is a great place to start because you get a lot of space and, and, and you can get it out to your audience and you can see what people respond to. If you get a lot of likes um, and a lot of comments, well, then, then it's good. Uh, if you didn't, well, then you want to take a moment to self-analyze and, and realize, well, maybe it's not. And, and try something else and maybe see if you get a different result. And certainly lawyers are smart enough to do this on your own, but certainly this, that is something you could engage a PR professional with because they can be your partner with it and help you in all the before uh, and after of, of the post and, and get you where you want to be. You know, pick a result and carve a path to get there. And certainly, Tina, you're your path on this is a blueprint to follow. I mean, you, oh, you had, so kind. <laughs> but, but, but it's so true. It's so true. You had a column in the daily law bulletin. You had a column in Chicago lawyer bef- and you were doing thought leadership before it was even a thing. And then look at all the natural transitions you've made to having, you know, podcast radio show, um, you know, being a go-to for the business of law and those sort of things. And, and that all, in the same way I was talking about my experience with the Emanuel case in, in uh, Chicago tonight, you did the same thing because it all happened organically. And, and that's like, that's the trick, right? You're doing something where you have a plan in place, but you still have to kind of do it all organically. And 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 that's also where media exposure can help because you're going to people are going to look at you as being more of an expert if someone else essentially says you're an expert right if you're getting highlighted by the news media for the work you're doing well that does all the showing that i need right i don't you don't i don't want you to do telling and we don't need to do any telling because the the news clips that you're getting from your work do all the showing we need. And so there's there can be some combination on that where eventually you get noticed. And even better if you're working if you're working in a field of law that for some reason is becoming a hot topic on a national or local scale, like that is absolutely uh, the time to chime in with a post that, you know, that, that that maybe a PR rep could then send out to some reporters and say, hey, you know, if you got a minute, feel free to give this a read and let me know if you'd like to talk to, you know, attorney A on, on this very issue that you're covering, you know, he or she can provide the perspective you're reading about. So that's another way. So that would be another way where if we did that LinkedIn post and it didn't get a lot of likes or it didn't get, and but we think it should have, there's still ways to use it. And, and that's probably the biggest key in being thought leadership is just because it didn't work the first way you intended it is a, a PR rep can, can, can breathe new life into it a different way and really just run through exhausting all options until something catches. And, and, and I assure you, if you're committed to it, if you're willing to do the self-analysis, if you're willing to identify um, you know, mistakes or weaknesses or something that could have done better, you will definitely eventually get to where you kind of want to be as, as, as the authority on whatever your, uh, 
topic is. Great advice. And I could not agree more. And I, I agree with you that a lot of it's experimentation. It, it really is there, there, there does need to be a plan that being said, and as you've conveyed in our time together through your career and the experiences that have sort of crossed your path, you need to realize when opportunities are presenting themselves and they are, and that they are opportunities, whether it's to talk to a reporter, whether it's to share thought leadership, to generate thought leadership, whether it's to, you know, take whatever opportunity may cross your path. You have to be discerning because we all have very limited time, but also be very open-minded about how something that may seem to be a rather small type of task or opportunity, how it could actually be leveraged into something more meaningful. So Pat, as we get ready to wind down our time together, there's a question that I always ask my guests as we get ready to close things out. And that is, if you were able to go back in time and talk to your younger self about what your life experience and professional experience has taught you, what would that be? Would you do anything differently? Oh, I think about that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the last 12 months uh, of living in the reality we're in uh, has, you know, brings those thoughts to the forefront. Uh, more so than they probably naturally would have occurred. <sighs> yes, I would tell myself to to listen more because um, and, and to understand the importance of timing because it's one thing to feel or believe you're you know one of the smart people in the room or that you have things to add to a discussion that would either answer a question or bring it to a good conclusion it's another thing to know the timing of when you should speak and i don't think i had that when i was in my 20s i didn't have that timing down it was just if i'm right i'm i'm going to let you know and there's a certain bluntness to to journalists that is very, very off-putting when you make the transition to PR that you absolutely have to manage a little bit better. You're not a reporter anymore. Uh, you're not a publisher. You're, you know, you don't have all the control in the relationship essentially um, by being the one who's the fact finder and reporter and then deciding what facts you're choosing to report and in what order or emphasis you're going to put them in. There's a lot of power in that. And I think that power can be a little blinding to just tone, timing, civility, professionalism. So I think I would try to have that conversation with that guy. And I know he wouldn't <laughs> listen and probably tell me to get the hell out of here. But uh, but yeah, that's that's something I would go back and tell him. So Pat, I've so thoroughly enjoyed our time together. And We've now reached the end of at least this uh, session together. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners and where can they find you? Listeners can find me at milheiserpublicrelations.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter with the handle at Pat Milheiser, spelled M-I-L-H-I-Z-E-R. And final thoughts, I, I just... 
uh, I just say thank you for this opportunity um, to come on. And it's, uh, it's just so wonderful to share these insights with somebody like you who is, uh, who's doing everything that you're doing. And, 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 and the key, you know, if you're, I guess what I would say is whoever you probably have PR reps at your firm that you're working at, they're in your life in some way. And I would say, just, just get to know them because there are, what I learned while I was at the law bulletin, whenever I would visit a law firm, every law firm has like five amazing stories that they don't realize are amazing stories. And, and the way you bring those to life is by just having regular meetings with the people in your organization who's re- who are responsible for getting those messages out. I think, I think one thing I've realized the most is we've gone into this pandemic mode that we're now transitioning out of. And uh, I found it to be, it was really hard sometimes to get a hold of people and, and, and timing and time is our most valuable thing. Yet, if you want good press, you got to make time for your PR reps. And, and that I think would be my uh, final thought. Pat, thank you so much for your generosity and your wisdom and for sharing so much with our listeners. I'm sure that they are going to take a lot from our conversation. I know I certainly did. And I look forward to next time with you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Tina. Great talking to you and look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part two of our conversation with Pat Milheiser and that you will join us next week for our next interview. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.